So thanks for everybody online. It's always a joy to see everybody. Um, our title for the message today is I'm Given Strength for My Weakness. Uh, this is part of our series about I am who I am in Christ. And this isn't quite about who I am in Christ so much as what happens with me in Christ. Um, so I'm, I'm given strength in exchange for my weakness. So I'm wondering if you ever feel like this. Everything seems to be exhausting me. No matter how much I sleep, no matter how much coffee I drink, no matter how well I manage my time, something inside me seems to have given up. My soul is tired. You ever felt that way? Yeah, we all have. You know, if you're more than four years old, uh, you know, you've been through some stuff and you've come nose to nose with the mirror and you get tired. I want to talk a little bit about Paul, our, you know, St. Paul that we all know and love. Sometimes we don't really get what Paul's life was like after he met Jesus. Paul was a miracle. I mean, his conversion was miraculous. He was a fanatic murderer, as we all know, chasing down anybody who spoke the name of Jesus and doing them harm. And he meets Jesus and everything goes head over heels for him. He completely turns around. I mean, it's like if Jeffrey Dahmer found Christ and you're like, yeah, right. But really, you know, and he begins to minister in Christ. Paul's conversion was miraculous. And not too long after his conversion, he tells us many years later, he was caught up in a vision into the third heaven, which means the place where God lives, where he says he saw things that he's not permitted to speak about. It was just too wonderful to endure. I kind of think that maybe that was God making it kind of showing Paul that his mission that he was going to be sent on was worth it. I mean, he had this incredible vision. Paul experienced lots of healing ministry. It, it got to the point, really, where after a while, if you just got, you know, he would sort of carry handkerchiefs and aprons around with him, and he could give you a handkerchief, and they would take it home to you where you're lying sick in bed, and you would get well from just touching the handkerchief. I mean, he... He just had all kinds of miraculous healings, including raising somebody from the dead. You know, he was apparently a really boring speaker. <laughs> and the fellow fell out a window on the street and died, and Paul raised him from the dead. So Paul is amazingly strong and righteous in every way that the world would recognize. It had to have been pretty darn tempting for him to boast in his own qualifications. So I want to look at his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6 to 10. Paul says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do and say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations that I've had. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, 
my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then again, in the letter to the Philippians, he says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Now, those are very familiar verses, but wait, there's more. Way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, again, extremely familiar, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 to 31, Isaiah says, God gives strength to the weary, and to the one who lacks might, he increases power. For youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So I have a question for you. Dan's not here. He'll never know your answer. Are you, are you feeling a little bit of dissonance, a little bit of Christian guilt, a little bit, a little Christian shame? Because we know we're supposed to be able to do all this amazing stuff, but I don't know if your life is like mine, but every once in a while I can do something amazing when God really moves in on me. But in the day-to-day -day grind, I don't feel it often. So what does it actually mean when I'm weak, then I'm strong? Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that actually mean? Well, think back to the Garden of Eden. Satan's very first lie, because that's Satan's big gun, is lying to us. Satan's very first lie is don't trust God. You need to be strong and independent and think for yourself. That's where Satan starts. And what happens when we believe that lie? The consequences are that everything we try to do will come up in thorns. Remember what God said to Adam? You're going to work and work and work and it's going to come up thorns. And when he said to Eve, you're going to have all these relationships and they're going to suck. You know, people are going to have power over other people and it's, it's going to go down the toilet. You're going to always be exhausted and worried and afraid and numb. That's what happens when we believe Satan's lie, that we need to be in control of our lives and think for ourselves and be on top of it. And, you know, we're all nodding our heads and, yeah, okay, we get that. But here's the thing, way down, and again, I'm, I'm assuming you're like me because everybody I've said this to is going, yeah. Way down in our bones, even though we know better, even though we know better, our cells still believe that we have to earn God's love. That to be good Christians, we have to perform. This kind of low cloud of, I should be doing more. I see a few heads sneaking a nod. I know, this rings. So how do I go about having strength in exchange for my weakness? because I seem to be kind of stuck with it. Well, step one is it starts with actually being weak. 
Let's talk about Paul's thorn. Basically, if we were going to re-paraphrase the living wheezy version of what we just read in the letter to the Corinthians, what Paul's saying is, in worldly terms, I deserve to be admired and obeyed. I have all the qualifications you could possibly think of, and I also had all these amazing visions. But if I think of myself and my own confidence, I will be ruined spiritually for ministry. Ruined. So God has kept me weak. He's doing me a favor by keeping all the competence in him so that when I've been pushed out of the way, his power and his love can operate and miracles are possible. Paul's thorn is a gift of love from God, even though Paul hated it and tried to get rid of it over and over and over. Thorns ain't fun. The Greek, the, the Greek word for thorn is skolops. That means a stake driven into the flesh like you would kill a vampire with. It's not fun. Nobody knows for sure what Paul's thorn was. It might have been something physical like, you know, running infected eyes. That was kind of a chronic condition that people had in those days. It might have been seizures or a speech defect or a stroke, some kind of physical thing like that. Or it might have been some kind of mental thing like chronic depression or anxiety or persistent temptation to a particular sin. What we know is it made him vulnerable and dependent even to the people he was ministering to. In fact, he actually says to the Galatians, as you know, it was because of my disgusting illness that I first preached the gospel to you. He was sick in Galatia, and some people found him and took care of him. And it was humiliating for Paul because whatever his thorn is, it's, it's kind of there to be humiliating. And they took care of them, and while they were taking care of them, he preached the gospel to them. So Paul was saying, this, that's what this thorn is for. Before we can be filled with God's strength, we have to have the weakness. It's like that old analogy that you're so familiar with, where you have to pour stuff out of the cup before God can fill the cup. And the thorn is part of emptying our cup. We have to have weakness before we can receive God's strength. Paul suffers trials, but it's this humiliating physical problem, which he should have been able to heal. I mean, famous healer. But that weakness is what puts him in the path of God's grace. And remember, Jesus talks about the same stuff. He says, you who are weary and heavy laden and dragging your heels, come to me and I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. Jesus also says, I have not come for those who think they don't need a doctor. I've come for the ones who know they're sick. So we have to know that we're weak. Let's look at Revelations chapter 3, 17 and 19. This is Jesus talking again. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need anything. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to come to me and buy gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So again, God gives us thorns as a gift of love so that in our weakness we can find his power. Because if we continue in our weakness, I mean, if we continue in our own strength, we won't find his power. 
we'll just find more of us. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of finding more of me. So our thorns let us find God's goodness and his power and come to know him as our sustainer, that we draw our life from him. Because pride is our constant enemy. I found a quote from a preacher named David Flowers, whom some of you may know about. Uh, he has all his life suffered from an anxiety disorder, which is basically just this low cloud of, of worry always, that it doesn't matter how you try to overcome it, it's a brain chemistry thing, it's there. And he struggled with it all his life. But he hadn't been talking about it with his congregation, because he's the pastor. Here's what he says. As I look back on 2008, I realize it will be defined as one of the hardest years of my life. A year where I've maybe grown more than any other year. For me, a year defined by my weakness, by the inability to be the person I wanted to be, the inability to manage and be, control, be in control of my image and keep the lid on, by vulnerability that came out, came out not out of some glamorous desire to set an example for anybody, but from getting to a place where weakness was all I had left. In 2008, my usual techniques that I depended on to uphold my image of myself as strong and independent and the go-to answer man just stopped working. All my tricks and tools for staying put together didn't work anymore. I came to the end of me and realized I was out there in the open, vulnerable before God and anyone else who happened to be watching. I had to preach on Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus tells us not to worry about anything. That was a decisive week for me because I had to confront the issue of whether or not I would stand up here and talk to you about your fears and worries and how God has everything in control without mentioning my own lifelong inability to deal with my own anxiety. Or I could preach the truth of my experience and how God has worked through me but hasn't healed me. This was a tough decision for me, as you can imagine. I have lived with shame all my life because of anxiety. I mean, here's the teacher and spiritual leader and counselor who others come to for help. And yet with all my faith and all my experience and all that I know about how to help people, I have not been able to help myself. How shameful, right? How embarrassing, how weak. You can feel for David Flowers, right? And yet when he got up and spoke the truth of his experience and preached out of that, God filled him with the strength to do that. We have to have weakness before we can receive God's strength. We have to give up being strong. Uh, I know most of us are familiar with AA, that a person who's going through AA or any of the other A's has to know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm not a used-to-be alcoholic. I'm still an alcoholic. I'm just recovering. Because it's important to know that the weakness is there so I can keep humble and focused on recovery. Once I'm through with that, I'm right back where I started. Think again about what Isaiah says in chapter 40 in that lovely psalm about how God gives strength to, to people. The, the ones that he talks about failing are the vigorous young men and the epitome of fleshly power. I mean, who do you turn to 
when you need furniture moved. You find a hairy young man and get them to do it, right? And kings are the epitome of earthly power. And this whole thing that Isaiah is talking about is they will fail. They're going to fall down. They stumbled. Remember the story of Gideon? He was supposed to go fight the Midianites. God said, I want you to collect an army and go fight the Midianites. And Gideon, in his own power, was able to raise an army of 3,000 men. Yay! I'm going to go fight the Midianites. And God says, hold on a second. We're going to thin that down. You're going to go fight the Midianites with 300 men. You can keep one out of every 10 of those guys that you found. Because when you conquer the Midianites, I want you to understand that I conquered the Midianites, not you. And this is not God being a jerk. This is God helping Gideon to get it who God is. Okay? Sometimes, you know, when I was a teenager, I would, I would read that story and I'd think, God is really kind of an egotistical jerk. He has to have all the glory for himself. But no, because he loves us, he needs the glory for himself so that we can see his glory. God is nothing but goodness and beauty, and we don't see it as long as we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. We miss it. Think about Isaiah again. Who does God make strong in that quote? It's the weary, the weak, those who don't have any power. Who is it that rises up on eagle's wings? It's those who wait for the Lord. Not the strong young ones. So what does it mean to wait on God? That's, that's kind of one of those phrases that for me it's kind of like the kingdom of heaven. You know, I've heard it all my life. I kind of have an intuitive osmotic feeling of what it is, but I haven't really thought out what does it actually mean? Wait on God. Well, sometimes it's just waiting. Waiting for God to act. Waiting for God to show up. Waiting in faith. Before Mary and Martha sent for Jesus, Jesus already had a plan about Lazarus. Lazarus had died. Jesus knew it. Jesus stalled for four days. Then he went. His plan was to make Mary and Martha wait. And they managed to pull it off so that when he got there, they still had faith in him. They were mad at him. But they still knew, you're the one, you could do something about this. Scripture shows us that part of waiting on God means rejecting fear and worry and waiting in confidence that God is already acting on our behalf, no matter what appears to be happening. Let's look at Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Well, we all know flesh can do plenty, but not really. Even if flesh kills me, it can't harm me. Because God is me. Let's look at Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, although the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, if I were in the San Francisco earthquake, I would probably be afraid. I'm sorry, but, you know, I'd have to go to what was left of my home and change my pants. And 
even if the building falls on me, God will still take care of me. King David expressed great confidence in the Lord because he was his might and his salvation and his stronghold. Listen to what David says. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Although an army besieges me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. Now, we don't have armies of enemies in Arizona. Instead, what we have is pregnant kids coming home or going to jail or continuing to be addicted or us continuing to be addicted or going to jail. Someone we have to deal with every single day becoming more obnoxious and scornful or dealing with disability and ourselves or the people that we love. That can feel like armies of enemies coming against us. So we call on God for help and we wait. Now this sounds a lot like let go and let God, right? Newspaper clippings. Mariposa, California. Seasoned mountain climber Randall Jespers tumbled hundreds of feet down the El Capitan rock formation in Yosemite National Park on Sunday after reportedly deciding to let go and let God. <laughs> I don't know, said Jespers of Sacramento. I was in a really tough spot on the cap, a couple hundred feet up, and I wasn't really sure how to tackle it. Then I remembered what Pastor Thomas said last week about difficult situations, telling us how we should just let go and let God. Well, you know, let go and let God is not actually in the Bible. <laughs> Neither is God helps those who help themselves, by the way. The Bible does not tell us to be passive or resigned or irresponsible. We are to let go of fear and worry. We're to let go of trying to be wise and strong and competent in our own flesh. Know that you're in the hands of God, and God is good, all good. There's no deceptiveness, no trickery, no meanness, no ego in God. God is good. So that leaves us with a question of how do we then be responsible while we're waiting? If we're not to just, you know, let go and fall off the mountain, what are we supposed to do? Well, we wait actively. We ask God to change me while I'm waiting. How might he change me? Well, he might give me patience. He might give me a long view. He might comfort me in my sleep. I need to stop and love the people around me and be where God put me. If God put me in a sucky place and I don't like it, I can still be there and love the people around me. I know several people who got put in prison. And the way they've addressed it is to be there and love the people around them, which ain't easy sometimes. And God is changing them while they wait. Remember the story that Jesus told about the virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come? And they're waiting by the gate, and they need to keep their lamps lit and stay awake so that when the bridegroom shows up, they'll be ready. They don't want to be caught sleeping or with their lamps gone out. We're to wait like a waiter, ready to do our duty, alert to what's going on around us. 
We don't know what's going to happen next, but we do know that they need bread. And we need to wait in the strength to keep on keeping on. When the thing that you're waiting for help with is not going to be finished in your lifetime, you need the strength of God so that you can just keep on keeping on doing the right thing. Because it takes strength, and yours is not going to be enough. Let's look at Hosea, chapter 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for God. And in Romans, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, not only this, but we celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings hope. We grow while we're waiting. Especially when we have to wait for a long time. So as God fills us with his strength into our weakness, what's the strength for? If I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what are those things? Can I make a bicycle out of thin air? Can I... Run for president and succeed? <laughs> the things that we can do must be the things that Christ wants to do because we're doing them in Christ. So we need to be doing what Christ is doing. That requires that we have humility with God. Um, John Wimber, who was the guy who founded the Vineyard Church, um, when he first was starting the, the church, it was they had it going, it was a huge church. I mean, they were just, they had people popping out the doors and everything, and they were doing all these ministries, and they were doing this, and they are doing that, and they had this fabulous choir, and it was just going crazy. But Wimber himself and key members of his leadership were exhausted and cranky and done and numb and out of touch with God. And at one point, Wimber, you know, fell on his knees in prayer and said, what is wrong with me? What's going on? And the word that he got from God was, John, I've seen your ministry. Now I'm going to show you mine. And things turned around. They got humble before God, and God was able to minister through them in a totally different way. So sometimes my strength is, is doing the wrong stuff. I think it's Christian stuff. It's got Bibles and, you know, crosses and bumper stickers and it should be Christian stuff, but it's not what God's doing. So in order to have God's strength, I need to be doing what Jesus is doing. In humbleness. That humility may involve serving in my weakness. God helped me with this humiliating problem. Now let me be used to help someone else. When I was being trained as a counselor, I, I, somebody read a poem to me, and I don't remember what the poem was or who wrote it, but the key line of it was, don't you have any scars? How can you think you're going to help me and you don't have a scar? So the fact that I have scars lets me minister. It's a weakness that God can shine through. Those scars can be amazing testimonies. And then there's the perseverance that we just talked about. Eugene Peterson has a great way to describe this. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. He's actually wrote a book with that title, which I highly recommend. 
but some thorns just don't go away. They're a gift from God, and they're with you until you're done. So the last part about waiting is waiting in hope. Psalm 130, which we all know and love. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. You can feel the heartache in that. Just, I'm waiting, God. But what do we know about the sun? Is morning coming? Well, yeah. Not only that, the sun is already there. We just can't see it yet. It didn't go away at night. God is here. God is acting. He's already with us. We're just waiting to be able to see what he's up to. So what's the point of all this? Well, anybody who tells you that God will never allow you to suffer something you can't handle is lying to you. They're trying to sell you something. God constantly gives you things you can't handle. He's good at it. It's part of his love. The point is that we are weak. We're not going to make it. It's because of our weakness that the power of God's love can be strong in us. God can do what God is doing, and he's able to do it through us when we're out of the way. Self-reliance is stale and profitless and dull and gray compared to the joy of relying on God's love and power flowing through us. We have not been given strength. We've been given God. Amen? All right. Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. God is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything, by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let his strength come into your weakness.